Hello, and welcome to Seeds and Ways, a podcast. I'm the Reverend Dr. Cheryl A. Lindsay, Minister for Worship and Theology for the United Church of Christ. Today I'm sharing my reflection, Shame, for January 28, 2024, the second Sunday in Lent, Year B, from the worship series, Say No, based on Mark 8, 31 through 38, which reads, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Shame. Shame denotes a feeling of humiliation, distress, and guilt that arises as a response to behavior. Often shame rises in community as accepted norms are broken. The one who has deviated from the rules is singled out and exposed for their actions. Unlike the eternal reflection of conviction or repentance, shame does not typically facilitate restoration or reconciliation. Like a criminal justice system focuses almost exclusively on punishment, shame rejects transformation and repair. Shame judges the person or persons finds them wanting or unworthy. Shame serves as a result of honor code systems in which maintaining honor is an ultimate goal, and anything that threatens the honor of the community or kinship group is a deep offense. It is jarring, therefore, to hear Jesus declaring that he will be ashamed of anyone, especially those he called, to follow him so closely. Even more alarming, Jesus first addresses Peter as Satan signifying that perhaps his closest companion has become his greatest adversary. What causes these forceful statements? Peter does not want to hear that Jesus will suffer and die, and he does not want Jesus to say these things publicly. In a temporary reversal of their relationship dynamics, Peter rebukes Jesus. That may, in fact, be the most astonishing moment recorded in the text. Jesus predicts his passion. Peter chastises Jesus either for being so open in sharing this prediction or because of the prediction itself. That remains mysterious as the Markan account omits Peter's actual words. For the gospel writer, Peter's reasoning does not matter. The specificity of his offense is not significant. Mark silences Peter in the way that Peter attempts to silence Jesus. The main point is that Peter offends Jesus. While Peter pulls Jesus to the side for a private talking to, Jesus pulls Peter back into the open so that his response will be public. Being called Satan by Jesus surely was humiliating to Peter. Of course, Jesus will later be accused wrongfully of being someone he was not. 
In some ways, Jesus provides Peter with a sampling of what will come for both of them when they each pick up their respective crosses. Peter seems to experience uniquely highs and lows with Jesus. He gets to go to the mountain and witness Jesus transfigured. In this encounter, he suffers humiliation. Jesus continues to prepare Peter for leadership in this ministry of the gospel. Like Peter, like Jesus, Peter will not have the luxury of allowing anyone or anything to interfere with spreading and being the good news to a world in need of the kingdom. Quote, although he is referred to as teacher, however, the main body of instruction is reserved for the central section of the biography in 822 through 1052. Here the mark in Jesus turns all worldly conceptions of honor on their head in favor of a deeply countercultural, shocking, and distasteful focus on what contemporary society would usually brand as shameful. Disciples are called on to deny themselves, to act as serf, slaves or servants to one another, and to care nothing for status or prestige. They're asked to give up everything, not only riches, but homes and families too, and possibly even their lives. True honor and greatness in the community which gathers around Jesus lies not in courting the esteem of others, but embracing a new understanding of honor based on ignominious service, suffering, and disgrace. Significantly, however, this is not only instruction given to others, but it is crucially the basis for Jesus' own way of life and ultimately his death. End quote, Helen K. Bond. Peter and his action are the focus of the passage, but like elsewhere in the gospel narratives, he also represents other disciples. It's not possible to spread the gospel if one is ashamed of it. Jesus forced him to confront his feelings of distress over the coming events. The text suggests that Jesus humiliated Peter in public when Peter wanted the conversation to be private. Shame often works in private, it isolates and conceals. The embarrassment that accompanies shame causes the one experiencing it to attempt to hide themselves or the source of shame. Yet Jesus insists on having this moment be fully revealed. Yet in his countering rebuke, Jesus instructs Peter to get behind him. He may be telling Peter that he cannot obstruct his plan or his destiny. Or Jesus, who loves his enemies, may also be inviting Peter to repent and continue to follow him. This is supported by his admonition to pick up their cross and follow him. Jesus has always known that the glory will be accompanied by suffering. Quote, Mark uses the words to suffer, suffering, only three times, always in the construction to endure many things. Most English translations obscure the parallelism of the Greek. These uses are a clue to the understanding of suffering in the Markan narrative world. The term occurs once in reference to the woman with the hemorrhage and twice in relation to Jesus' coming passion. The sickness of the woman is to be cured, while the lot of Jesus is to endure many things, that is, to be persecuted by the powers that be. For Mark does not lump all forms of suffering together. The narrative sharply distinguishes between general human suffering, which is to be cured or alleviated with Jesus' inauguration of God's rule, and persecution, which is the lot of those who persevere in following the way of God as long as this age endures. 
end quote, Joanna Dewey. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus performs miracles to remove human suffering. He proclaims a message of abundant love and hope to encourage, inspire, and include those marginalized by society. He invites the oppressor to also be set free by releasing the need for power over and greed. Jesus declares the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. His message is not about saving the individual person, but redeeming humanity. Many contemporary communities have come to rebuke the theology of salvation. A more faithful response may be to reclaim the thought theology of salvation as a communal and cosmic reality, rather than the reduction of it to a fixation with individual sin and forgiveness. The original audience would have known a worldview where the individual could not be separated from the community. Quote, the first demand in Mark 8:34, let them renounce themselves, certainly sounds to modern ears like a call to self-sacrifice. Today, many do tend to read it as a denial of the individual self, a call to give up one's will, always to put oneself last. I suggest that this is not what it would have conveyed to a first century audience. First, their sense of self was quite different. They had little idea of any individual identity. Second, the demand is in parallel with taking up one's cross, and it is to be interpreted in the context of persecution. In Mark, to become a disciple is to renounce one's kinship group and to join those following Jesus. That is, to join the new community or fictive kinship group around Jesus. The Mark in Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Later, in response to Peter's question about what the disciples get for following him, Jesus spells out the riches and cost of rejecting kin. There is no one who has left a house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the good news who does not receive a hundred times as many now in this time. To deny oneself then is to, not, to deny one's kin. End quote, Joanna Dewey. Jesus then is not advocating or threatening isolation or exclusion through shame. He informs his followers of the risk of being ashamed of the fullness of the gospel, the walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as well as the ascension to God's, high, God's holy mountain. Saying no to that shame facilitates saying yes to compassion and companionship with the suffering and marginalized. Saying no to shame allows pursuit of God's beloved community despite fear and beyond consequence. Saying no to shame keeps the way of Jesus in full, exposed, and transparent view. Saying no to shame says yes to picking up one's cross and following Jesus, knowing that Jesus only carried the cross for a small portion of his life. At the moment of truth, Jesus did the hardest thing in full public view. It was an attempt to humiliate him, but he kept his integrity. They insulted and tortured him, but his primary distress and concern was for the care and well-being of others. The forgiveness of those crucifying him, the reconstruction of the family unit for his mother and friend, and the reconciliation of the repentant thief hanging beside him. The cross, like current methods of execution, was designed as a method to carry out the death penalty as shamefully as possible. And yet, Jesus transforms it for God's glory. Say no to shame. Thank you for joining me on Seeds and Ways. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find the full sermon seeds entry, including a suggested congregational response, 
quotes for further reflection, voices of African descent, and the roadmap for the entire season on ucc.org. Sermon Seeds also has a Facebook page where I do Facebook Live process videos in preparation for the reflection and share updates and links for Sermon Seeds and Worship Ways. Follow us there. And subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. I pray that this tool provides a seed that will bear fruit in your faith community as you proclaim the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.